0: This is the Jobs and Science podcast. I'm Andrew Chapman. As scientists, I think it's kind of common to to joke about the the small number of people around the world that will read let alone care about the work that we do. And that's because scientific papers are, are often way too technical, even for people in somewhat related fields to understand, let alone the general public. So the way that the public gets basically any access to scientific information is through the media, is through science journalists. They have the job of distilling all of the scientific information down to the things that feel timely and relevant. And they they have the responsibility of celebrating the role that science plays in society while still being critical and holding scientists accountable to do ethical, rigorous work. And to me, at, at least from the outside, science journalism sounds like a pretty cool job. And especially freelance science journalism, where you get to Make your own schedule and pick your own ideas for stories. Maybe for this reason, we've had a couple people ask us to do an interview with a science journalist. So we did, and here she is.
1: My name is Leslie Evans-Ogden. I'm a freelance science journalist. I live in Port Mooney, just outside of Vancouver.
0: leslie will tell us her story of how she became a science writer Uh, she started in academia went through a phd did a postdoc had a family and at some point decided that it was maybe time to look at other options and eventually she got into freelance science writing Uh, and so she'll describe all of those transitions and how you can build up skills in science writing if you're interested in that career. And also guide us through the whole process of doing a piece from the initial pitch to the final publish. Stay tuned. Uh, I'm a writer, probably as good as Elton John But what's writing good for if it ain't helping moms I'm trying to feed Japan while seeing sites in Lebanon And wiping away tears of the girls that's getting felted on I'm trying to get my felt pen on, but the block is hot. My hands is That's good. There. Yeah.
1: Okay. One, two,
0: three. One of the questions that we normally like to start off with is, uh, "What got you into the sciences to begin with?"
1: Um, I think I got into science to begin with because when I was a kid, my father was really interested in bird watching, and so even as a young child, I used to help out with bird banding mm-hmm. at Prince Edward Point in um, on Lake Ontario. And so I sort of imprinted on birds, and that ended up being um, my study organism that I studied for a long time.
0: And so where did you, you went to undergrad in Vancouver?
1: No, I did my undergraduate at University of Toronto in zoology, and then I did a master's in biological sciences at York University. And then uh, I moved out here to do a PhD at Simon Fraser, and then I did a postdoc here at UBC. My PhD was in wildlife ecology. Okay. Yeah. So the specific area that I looked at was shorebirds, and I was looking at their winter ecology here in the Fraser Delta mm-hmm. and looking specifically at how they used agricultural land and how important agricultural land was to them in the winter time.
0: Why did you choose to go to grad school?
1: Um, well, I got really switched on to field ecology uh, by taking a field course one summer when I was an undergrad, It was an insect biodiversity course in Costa Rica, and it was just, it totally blew my mind. It was really exciting to be out in the field, and Mm -hmm. uh, I just loved it, and I thought, wow, this is is exciting and interesting and stimulating, and I wanted to go to grad school so I could do field ecology.
0: So after you did your PhD, at some point you made a decision, you were going to go even further and do the postdoc.
1: Yeah, so my original goal um was, you know, I wanted to to get a faculty research position. That was my original plan. Mm-hmm. So, after I finished my PhD, I did a postdoc, during that time applying for academic positions and uh I heard someone describe it once as being a postdoc is a little bit like a an airplane circling an airport in a holding pattern and every once in a while someone gets called down to the airport, but if, you know, after you've been circling and circling for a while, you start to run out of gas, and that's sort of what happened to me. I started thinking, you know, I think I I need to see what else I can do with my skills. I, okay. You know, it just became a numbers game. There were, um, you know, a lot of people graduate with PhDs, and there aren't enough academic jobs for everyone, so I started looking for other opportunities.
0: So how long was your postdoc?
1: Officially, I think it, it took me about, I, I did about four years here, um though part of it was sort of on a part-time basis because I had a small baby at the time. So, uh, yeah, so it was like three full-time years.
0: And then at some point towards the end of that, like what was that process like for you when when you're contemplating whether or not you wanted to continue?
1: What happened during that time was I was applying for jobs and I did get, you know, I was working as a sessional. I worked here. Um, doing some teaching, and then I did some teaching at SFU, um, at Capilano, and at the same time I was taking part-time courses in journalism online. Um, I had thought about going back full-time, but having gone through that much school, it was just not really appealing to go back and pay a lot of money to go back to school for another (laughs) degree which may or may not help me, because a lot of journalists don't have journalism degrees, so I thought, what can I do in terms of getting some skills um, that won't take me as long as actually committing to going back to school for a full year. So I took some courses. The first one I took was called Boot Camp for Journalists with an entity called um, Media Bistro out of the U.S., and that was really helpful. It was an eight-week course. We just met online once a week, and I had an instructor who was a former editor at Cosmo magazine of all places so that was my teacher and then we had a you know it was a fairly small group of people and so each week we learned a different genre of journalism so news writing um, you know profiles etc there were seven different types that we learned and each week we would hand them in they would be critiqued both by our instructor and also everyone else in our class had a chance to sort of look it over tell us what they thought of our piece of writing and that was really helpful. Um, and probably the most helpful skill that I learned in that first introductory course was how to write a pitch. Mm. And that, that's that been helpful ever since.
0: At what point did you realize, like, journalism was...
1: Um, well, the funny thing is, when I was actually about 17 and sitting around the dining table at my home in Kingston, I was filling out applications for undergrad at university and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to study, but it was thinking about different options, and I remember my dad saying to me, well, you know, Leslie, you're good at science, and you're good at writing. Maybe you should consider being a science journalist, but I was a teenager, and you don't want to listen to your parents when you're a teenager, and I thought, ah, of course I don't want to do that. So I went into music in undergrad, and then switched into sciences, master's, PhD, postdoc, and then uh, so the journalism came much later, but I've always loved writing. I just never really considered making a career out of it until much, much later on.
0: Right. I mean, did you find did you find the academic writing satisfying?
1: Um, not particularly. Yeah. I mean, it's very formulaic yeah, and exactly. quite dull, really. I mean, it's, you know, and it, it's meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I first took this first journalism course and started writing in a more um, sort of mass media style, It was a bit, it felt a bit like having the the chains taken off my ankles. It was just, it was really fun to be able to write in a more popular, sort of fun, informal style.
0: I mean, you had a family at this point, too?
1: Yeah, so I had, my son was two when I started my PhD at SFU, and then I had, my second son was born... Uh, ten days after I handed in my PhD thesis. Oh wow! Yeah, he was my <laughs> he, deadline. He, he waited.
0: Yeah, he was
1: the deadline. <laughs> um, and then I had a third child during my postdoc, so I have three.
0: So all of them during your academic yes. career. Yes. Yeah. So did that? Did do you think that that played a role in your decision to? find a different airport to land in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think had I been single and didn't have kids in school um, and also didn't have a partner that had a, a, you know, a a well-paying job Mm -hmm. here in Vancouver, I would have been far more likely to consider doing another postdoc in a different city or being open to, you know, um, jobs at at universities, small universities in the U.S., for example. But in terms of doing a second postdoc, it didn't make sense, fin- f- make sense financially for, to uproot the whole family for a very poorly paid job in a, in uh um, cause most of the opportunities I was looking at were in the U S mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it just would, would have been financially pretty much financial suicide to, yeah, to yeah. be able to, to do that. So that was, that was definitely part of the decision.
0: And you're, I remember reading somewhere at one point. Is your your husband is Australian, or uh, you met no, in Australia?
1: No, I met him when we were both youth hosteling in Australia. I met him in a swimming pool at a youth hostel. <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what point did you travel then?
1: Uh, I traveled in between my third and fourth year when I was doing my undergrad. I took off and went tra- backpacking around
0: New Zealand and Australia. Okay. Was he Canadian?
1: No, he was British and had emigrated to Australia because he hated the British weather okay and then eventually I imported him to Vancouver right, so right. go figure there you go
0: <laughs> cool okay, so uh, I guess just kind of going back to the timeline you you had done these online courses right, and I've kind of looked into this myself and and I know people who have as well and and it's like. It's the, it's the point when you actually get started that seems right. like an enigma to me, personally. Uh-huh. You know, like, people are looking for a portfolio, but if you don't have one, how do you convince them to, you know... To take you t- on. T- take your pitch or whatever. Right. So can you describe, like, how you got started doing it?
1: I didn't have what you might call a portfolio when I started. I had... I was literally in the middle of taking this boot camp for journalism course mm-hmm. and they taught us how to write a pitch so I thought okay I'm going to practice writing pitches and see what I can do and so I I started really carefully looking at uh some publications that I thought I could potentially write for um because one of the things about breaking in is, is you really have to know the the publication or the the entity that you want to you know produce things for so I started looking at issues of Natural History magazine because uh, my, actually my PhD advisor had said to me, oh, you should check out Natural History magazine. You you could write stuff for them. So I looked very carefully at the format, the kind of articles they published, and I just started pitching them, and it was completely cold pitching. I didn't know the editor. Mm-hmm. didn't know anyone who wrote for them. I I wrote a pitch on a particular new science paper, and the editor was nice enough to say oh, you know, this, no, we don't want this one, but actually it was a pretty well-written pitch, so try again next month. So, because um, they publish monthly and they were full for that month. Mm-hmm. So I tried again the following month and she was actually really encouraging again, even though she said no again. She <laughs> said, but this time, the reason she said no was because someone else was actually already writing on the exact okay. same article. So I thought, okay, I'm, I figured out the k- types of stories they want, but someone else got there first this time. Yes. So the third month I pitched, and that third one she said yes, and that was my first kind of okay. success. Right. And that I, I didn't have any portfolio to show them. I just. But when you're starting out, a pitch is an example of your writing. So you just make sure you know, there's no typos. It's well written. Mm-hmm. It's not too long. Um, a pitch can be your, your first in without any, any clips.
0: Were, were you still postdocing when you were pitching these? Uh,
1: I was not postdocing anymore. I was working as a sessional lecturer on a part-time basis. Okay. In fact, um, yeah, I didn't really go all in on it until um, well, I guess I got a contract with Science World for about an, a nine-month contract to help them develop a new exhibit, and that was sort of my first full-time gig as a in my transition to being a science writer freelancer. And while I was doing that, I was also writing um, writing for magazines on the side. And then that summer, after I worked at Science World, I went to the Banff Science Communications Program. Mm-hmm. And that's a two-week intensive program that was really helpful in terms of making connections, developing new skills. After I finished that program, I worked for a year for the Science Media Centre of Canada, um, which was a great opportunity to learn Sort of both sides of the bridge of the you know the science bridge and the or the science side and the um, science writing, science journalism side, mm-hmm. um, because the that entity was a, an organization that helps journalists to cover science more effectively. So I was working with both scientists and journalists and right. helping connect them. Um, and but after doing that for a year, most a lot of my job was looking for interesting science stories that were coming out and writing little teasers and sending them out to journalists across Canada. And after a year of doing that, I was really frustrated about the fact that I was always sending out good stories to other people, and I uh, really wanted to write okay. them myself. Gotcha. So had I, because I'd been al- already doing um, writing on a part-time basis, it, was, it wasn't that much of a leap of faith to decide you know i I finished my contract there and i I just started freelancing full time sort of built it up from part time to full time
0: so you're sending all these ideas out to other people right do you think that that did that help you learn what a good idea was
1: yeah for sure that that whole year was really helpful in terms of better understanding what journalism what journalism was all about um how it was different from science, how you know deadlines are completely different um yeah, it helped me learn that journalism journalism is a whole different world, and science journalism is, of course, still about science, but it's very different than being a scientist and yeah, being an academic.
0: Then, at some point, you did make the full commitment to freelance, right? Um, was that was that a scary decision, or it, was that at that point were you confident enough that you could you could do it?
1: Yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't really scared. I was kind of excited. Like I said, I. Um, I learned an enormous amount from working at the Science Media Centre of Canada, but um, it was a very intense job as well. And um, I wanted to have the flexibility to set my own hours. And I had built up enough clients sort of from part-time freelancing that I didn't feel overly nervous about Mm -hmm. deciding to jump in and do it on a full-time basis. Gotcha. Okay.
0: And so, like, you start doing it, and then do you have this backlog of ideas that you think might make good stories or like how like how how does that process work like how do you get the ideas?
1: Yeah I mean the thing about being a science writer is it's I I sort of describe it as having idea diarrhea right. because I could probably spend 10 lifetimes writing all the story ideas that I want to write about There, there's when you're a science writer ideas come from everywhere they mm-hmm you know, you might see someone on the bus or see a sign on the bus and think, oh, I wonder what that is all about. And, you know, ideas literally come from everywhere. Uh, I had one idea that came to me when I was running in the woods because I discovered this or came across this really interesting type of frost that I'd never seen before. And so I went to look at it and that led to going on to Twitter and saying, hey, has anyone seen this kind of frost before? And that led to Oh, that would make a good story, right. and I ended up writing a feature about it. So, you just yeah, stories come from everywhere.
0: So then you have to, th- I mean, trim down which ones you're actually going to pitch at that point.
1: Yeah, it's a constant process of of deciding, okay, which stories are good enough or newsworthy enough to pitch at any given time. Um, so I would say, yeah, at any one time, I'm probably working on about eight. Assignments and working up story ideas for future pitching mm-hmm.
0: how do you how do you find that that process i I imagine it you start pitching and even now you're pitching, and there's a certain percentage that are getting rejected like is that is that a frustrating experience or is that something that you kind of grow accustomed to?
1: Yeah, I would say when I first started out. Maybe one in 10 of my pitches would get accepted, Mm -hmm. or very often when you first start, it's a bit like pitching into a black hole because you're lucky if you even get a response. Very often you don't even get a reply, and you might, you know, you can send the editor a reminder. Uh, My first instructor said if you get no reply, then you should call them on the phone, but people seem to be... You know, some people think that's a good idea. Other people think that's a terrible idea. Um, so when I first started, yeah, it was maybe one in ten that would would get through the door. Um, now I would say it's more like one in two because I've just, I've got much better at pitching. understand how to write a good pitch, mm-hmm. how to understand your audience. Um, and I've, you know, over time developed more of a reputation and got to know uh, editors and, you know, other freelancers. And we help each other out with... Opportunities, So right. it gets easier over time, provided you learn from your mistakes. Okay.
0: So not only do you start to know how the whole thing works, but you also have a community of, of yes. science writers that you talk to? Yeah.
1: So um, I, until recently, was on the board of the Canadian Science Writers Association, and that organization was really important for me when I first started writing. Um I joined that organization right after I I started uh freelancing even on a part-time basis and the first meeting I went to I didn't know a, a single soul but and I expected people to be very kind of competitive and cutthroat and they weren't like that at all they were this really friendly welcoming uh helpful community that continues to be uh, a really nice community to interact with and People, you know, there are, of course, exceptions, but in most cases, people really help each other out.
0: Mm. Yeah, that sounds nice, because uh, you don't you don't have co-workers, right? Like, you don't have people that you see every day, presumably.
1: Right. I don't as a freelancer. I mean, yeah. there are lots of opportunities for science writers where you do have co-workers and you might work in an office. Right. Um, like a staff writer. But, yeah, it is, especially as a freelancer, it's really great to have networks of other freelancers and people. And people that you maintain contact with. Right.
0: Okay. Um, so I guess kind of cruising along on the on the process then. So you get, you, you've you pitched your idea. Right. Um, editor comes back and says, I think it sounds like a good idea. Right. Then the next part is doing all the research and reporting.
1: Well, the next part is um, finding out from your editor, you know, how long is the story going to be and then uh, if you don't already work for them, negotiating a contract because they might offer you, you know, X amount and it's not, y- you, that's also where your community comes in handy because you can say, hey, I just pitched a piece to, you know, Science Weekly or whatever the publication is and they're offering, offering to pay me 50 cents a word. Is that reasonable or what do you get paid when you write for them? And that's that's the kind of information sharing that's really helpful to get from others. So. Yeah. So the first thing is uh, you get your contract, you look at the contract, you either sign it and say, yeah, that's great. Or you negotiate back and forth to try and get better copyright or um, better pay. And then once that's taken care of, then, then yeah, then you start your research and setting up interviews and.
0: Okay. So are, are people normally fair on, in terms of?
1: In terms of uh, the contracts? Right. Yeah. I, it's completely all over the map. Really? And okay. there are, yeah, I mean, there are places with a reputation of paying poorly. Some places don't pay at all. Um, obviously I don't write for those as a professional science <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. journalist, but people that are just starting out often get taken advantage of by those kinds of places cuz they they get, you know, eyed by the idea that, you know, publication X is going to publish their work mm. and they're not going to get paid for it. Right. And you know, maybe it's okay to do that once or twice, but
0: <laughs> it's like the bands that the bars are like, it'll be great exposure if you play yes. here. Yeah.
1: yeah, what we like to say in freelance in the freelance world is that you can die from exposure. Right. So don't write for exposure.
0: <laughs> you Presumably in the pitch, you know the people who, like if you have an idea, you know the sources and the people that you need to interview before before you even really start to do it, right?
1: Uh, generally speaking, I mean, it depends on how big of a, a story it is that you're pitching. If it's a news piece and it's just based on one particular science article, then yes, you will know the, the people you're going to interview. If you're, if you're pitching a feature, uh, you might, you know, suggest maybe three or four experts in your pitch, but you might find others as you're doing the research that are more interesting or, um, yeah. So your pitch is sort of a starting point, and mm-hmm. you may... Find additional experts to interview once you once you get going.
0: Right, and then so you have, and and then at some point you decide that it's time to call them up.
1: Yeah. So um, I usually will email them and just say, you know, here's my schedule. I'd like to interview you about this particular story and I read about your research here can we set up an interview set up an interview by email and then I either usually talk to them on the phone or by Skype
0: okay and and how do you find that I mean obviously me interviewing you here like I don't know I, I find these like a little bit hard to get used to is right. that something that you feel very comfortable with now
1: um I feel very comfortable with it now when I first started I really felt like I was just total faker like I would right you know I felt like I'm not really a journalist, but I'm pretending to be a journalist. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, yeah, you just get better at it and more used to it over time. And there are still occasions where if I'm interviewing someone that's really famous and well-known in their field, I'll still get a little nervous about doing the interview. Mm-hmm. But it's more kind of an excited kind of nervous as opposed to a anxiety right, kind of nervous. Right. I'm going to yeah. mess this up yeah. kind of thing.
0: And then so at some point you just sit down and and try and block out the world and and do your writing?
1: Yeah I do but I would say before I do the sitting I every day I try and go for a run or get some exercise because I find that really helps me focus okay. before I start my writing. Mm-hmm. So yeah the, the sitting is necessary but doing something active ahead of time really helps me to to write more efficiently and
0: right, helps yeah. me focus. So would you say that's it's your least favorite part then?
1: The writing, yeah. No, actually, it's my most favorite part. Oh, okay. I love it.
0: Right. Yeah. Right, right. Everything
1: right. else is leading up to it. It's like the cherry on the top of your dessert.
0: <laughs> so, so what is it? What is it that you like about it,
1: though? Um, well, I kind of love the struggle. I mean, it's it. Sometimes it makes me grumpy and horrible to be around because I'm trying to figure everything out, and you know, how do I write the introduction, and how do I finish it, and. But I, it's kind of a just a, a, wonderful struggle. I just I love that the whole process, and when you finish, it's just the best feeling.
0: Right, it's kind of like research in that way.
1: Yeah, I would say quite similar. Yeah, yeah,
0: Z- yeah. The, the the low points are often what make the other points that much better. I, I think. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed uh, there was there was one article that you wrote, and it's it was in a couple of different. Places, right? It was one on cycling in different okay. urban areas. Mm-hmm. It was in the Guardian, and uh, it's escaping me. It was also featured somewhere else. Too, is that right? Yeah.
1: So that was um, that's an interesting publication. That was my first piece for a British science blog called Mosaic, oh, and okay. they have a Creative Commons license. So whatever you part of your contract that you sign with them is, they then have permission to. Um, let anyone else republish it that wants to and so yeah that piece got picked up by quite a lot of places including the guardian and uh, pacific standard in california um, matter in the u.s it was picked up by quite a few different places
0: um another thing that kind of struck me about that piece as like as a cyclist myself i feel i feel as if if it were me, I'd be like, "How can I find a way to write an article about this thing <laughs> that I really want to do?" Right. It was was that the, the case in this situation?
1: Sort of. I mean, the at the time, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research were giving out these really amazing journalism fellowships. They were twenty thousand dollars, and you could apply for them. It was like write, writing a research grant, but there was a journalism grant. And so, when I first found out about them, I thought wow, that sounds amazing, and you can use part of it for travel, and what can I do that would be really cool and interesting? And I started looking on their um, website for the different areas of research that they do, and one of them w- had to do with you know exercise and the health benefits of exercise, and then I started noticing there was a group that studied cycling in, at UBC and SFU, and I thought that would be cool, and so I sort of developed the idea from there. With the grant money, um, I was able to go to Copenhagen, uh, Amsterdam, London, Paris, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal.
0: So, have you done any other any other projects that involve travel as well?
1: Yeah, I just did another piece for Mosaic that came out. Um, I forget, like six months ago or so. That would also involved some travel within Canada, though. I went to Alberta and Calgary and Montreal for that for the reporting for that trip.
0: Okay. And so that's another part of the negotiation is like, I need some money if I want to do this properly.
1: Yeah. I mean, these days, there are actually very few places that have travel money for Mm -hmm. journalists. So that was one of the appeals of writing for this new blog, Mosaic, because they did, they made it known that they had travel funding. And so if you had a really great idea that you wanted to travel somewhere to report on a story that they, you know, provided your story was a solid one that was interesting, mm-hmm. they were willing to fund your travel. So there aren't very many places, right. you know, besides the really, the, the, the ones that are tough to get into, like National Geographic, yeah, right. New York Times, those places have money to send you places.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that is that a recent thing? Is Is it, you know, because everything is more online, less print, is that, like, the funding's lower?
1: Well, I think in general, I mean, a lot of people have been sort of um, bemoaning the demise of journalism in general. And, yeah, there have been huge cutbacks and reductions in the number of dedicated science journalists mm-hmm. everywhere, not just in Canada, all over the world. Um, and part of those cutbacks is, yeah, that they, they just don't have the money to send you off to wherever it is you want to go to write your story. So, yeah. um,
0: So would you say it's... I mean, you kind of left one area with lower funding to another area with lower funding, I mean, funding that's, like, decreasing over time. Do you think that, is that a trend that's going to continue? Like, if someone wanted to start a career in science journalism, is that something that they should be aware of?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you'll read a lot of doom and gloom scenarios about journalism and how it's a terrible time to become a journalist. Um, That said, there, but, I mean, I am making a decent living at it, and it's certainly possible if you're persistent and, you know, deliver your stories on time, develop good relationships with editors, Mm -hmm. are assertive but also polite. Um, it's, It's completely feasible. There are opportunities out there. A lot of print magazines and newspapers are going, getting flushed down the toilet, but... There are a lot of digital and online opportunities now that didn't exist before. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's totally feasible to make a living being a science journalist and probably even more feasible to, to do science writing more generally because there are a lot more, um, potential jobs. You know, communicate. Every, uh, university has needs for communicators, you know, um, media relations communicators uh, in different areas. Science, every science entity has communications people that that work with journalists and help get their stories out. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I guess, like, kind of projecting into the future a little bit, what like, what what do you see as like, y- you know, five years or ten years is is freelance still the direction you'd like to go in?
1: Yeah, I mean, there would have to be a pretty sweet deal for me to leave freelancing mm-hmm. and take up some kind of staff position. Um, I love the flexibility of it. I'm also, my sort of, you know, five and ten year goal is to to do not just print and online journalism, but also get into doing more radio and television work. And mm-hmm. I've been actually working for the last year or so with a documentary film producer in Montreal, um, doing some writing and research for for that um, production company. So that's been really interesting. And that's an area that so I'd like to be, I guess what you could call a multi-lancer, where I'm not just writing for print and online, but also writing and producing for television and radio as well.
0: Right. M- more, more types of media. Then. Yeah, yeah. Multimedia. Yeah. So is that, I mean, that's the more, you know, kind of thing. Like, the, the more you know, the, the, the safer you'll be? Or is that you're more just excited about it and that's what um, you
1: to Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think most journalism students going through school today are told by their teachers that you have to be, you know, a jack of all trades. Because very often you will when you submit your story, they, they want you to have video on your iPhone that you submit with it or they want you to take mm. pictures. And so whereas before they might have had, you know, three people doing that, now it's one person doing everything. Um, so there's a certain amount of, yeah, there's a certain amount of stability of being able to have those skills. and But I, it's also a personal interest. I really, I, I like storytelling not just in print, but I'm really interested in storytelling in a visual
0: and audio way right. as well. Right, yeah. I mean, I kind of think, like, that kind of covers all the bases. Okay. Is, there, is there any other th- things that you think, like, I should ask you if, um, if you were doing this interview? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you. there was a question that you wanted to know about was if if I had advice for other people oh, wanting to get into I yeah. journalism um, journalism or freelancing as a science writer. I would say the most important thing is networking, like, if you're interested in science writing, join the Canadian Science Writers Association. There's also a National Association of Science Writers in the U.S., which is a much bigger group. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a lot more intimidating. Um, Why is that? Because just the sheer numbers. So, oh. for example, at the Canadian Science Writers meeting, you'd be lucky to have 100 people there, whereas I just went to the NASW meeting in Boston mm-hmm. last October, and there were 800 science writers. Right.
0: Okay. Um, and so networking. So
1: networking, really important. Yeah, the other thing, too, is just get practice, just write. I mm-hmm. mean, um, I don't have a blog, but lots of people get into science writing from starting to write a blog and then kind of building up uh, a reputation and, and clips from there. Um, but whatever you do, whether you, you know, take a course and start pitching and develop a uh, some clips that way, just, you know, practice and network. That's, those are the,
0: I would say, are the the most important things. Right. Okay. Um, maybe just one last question to wrap it up. Sure. Um, we can put it in our show notes. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite story you've done?
1: Um, It's hard to choose a favorite. You want me to choose one favorite? Uh, well,
0: maybe top three.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you brought up the bicycle one, that... Um, is definitely one of my favorites. I mean, it was an incredibly interesting journey to travel to all those different places and actually get on a bicycle and um, not only interview experts, but also just talk to people on the street that were on their bicycles. Um, So that story was really interesting and fun to write, and I learned a lot from the experience. Um, I also uh, wrote an interesting story last year for BBC Future uh, that was about fear and memory, and the idea came from a paper that was published by uh, a psychologist based in Ontario who had the really unusual experience of having been on a plane that almost crashed, crashed into the ocean. And um, she had already been studying uh, in the area of psychology. But because of that experience and because she developed PTSD, she decided that she wanted to study PTSD in an academic professional way and so that was a really interesting story because it it really had a just a really interesting connection between the personal and the professional.
0: Okay and so that's two.
1: That's two. Um, I wrote a really interesting story this past year about spiky bat penises for (laughs) BBC Earth and that was super fun to write because the scientist was extremely interesting and enthusiastic and passionate and it was just a really crazy topic so it was really fun to write about
0: very big thanks to leslie for agreeing to do that interview um, we'll post the three articles that she talked about at the end of the interview, her three favorite articles uh, in the show notes. If you'd like to hear old episodes of the Jobs in Science podcast, visit jobsinscience.ca. If you'd like information on when new episodes are coming out or on the Jobs in Science live events, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. The podcast is supported by the Faculty of Medicine grass pods and Cidr studios so thanks to them and we'll be back in a few weeks with a a brand new uh, feature episode something a little bit different and it's definitely something to look forward to all right take it easy